As you find your seat, if you will open your Bible to the familiar passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, find your place there and leave your Bible open in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and let me tell you on the front side that everything that God instructs you to do, not all of the Bible are commandments and instructions. The Bible is actually a library. It's a collection of books that collectively tell a single story of God's love for the world that was dying without Him. So it's not all instructions. There's stories and poetry and wisdom. But everything God tells you to do, everything that God explicitly instructs you to do, either directly or through example, is all for your good. Everything that God tells you to do will have two purposes at once. If you do what God says, it will bring Him glory, and at the same time, it will be good for you. And many Christians, not seeing the immediate benefit of what God tells them to do, choose their own path. One of the things you hear all the time as a pastor who's just opening the Bible with people and sharing what they can read for themselves, God has told them to do. We often, we pastors and everybody who teaches the Bible or counsels people using the Bible, we're very accustomed to hearing two words, and those words are, yeah, but. And what that normally sounds like is, that doesn't make sense to me, I don't want to, I I, 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 and it's hard to get people to see sometimes that the blessing will come. There will be safety, there will be protection, there will be favor, there will be grace, there will be provision. It depends on what God Himself has promised, but you can depend upon this. Everything that God has told you to do will be both glorious for Him, it will bring glory to Him, and it will undeniably be good for you. The trouble is, sometimes we're like five-year-olds being told to brush our teeth. That's one of the hardest things to teach kids to do because it doesn't have any immediate benefit. I don't know if you've noticed this, but preschoolers and kindergartners hardly ever care about what they put in their mouth. They're sensory-driven, and they're just sampling and trying. A lot of little kids I've known have loved to, you know, have a little bit of a nightcap with Mountain Dew and gummy bears, get a good old American nine-ounce dose of sugar right before mom or dad try to put them to bed. And to tell the child, you have to put this harsh-tasting thing in your mouth and take this strange implement that you don't quite know how to use yet, and you may jam halfway up your head and carefully brush these teeth because it'll be good for you in the long run. Otherwise, you'll get, what's the threat we make? Cavities. cavities. You'll get cavities. They don't know what that is. They don't care. They just know it's a pain. And parents have this unenviable task of teaching people who do not yet know how to think past next week to do something that will protect their teeth and their health in years to come. Little children don't think like that, and Christians have to be very careful that we don't act like little children when we hear our Heavenly Father tell us to do something which He assures us is His will, will be glorious 
if we obey Him, and it will actually be good for us. Let me show you three commitments in 1 Thessalonians 5 that if you put these things into practice will absolutely, undeniably bring glory to God and be good for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 I'm just going to read three verses. In fact, you can read them with me. I printed them there on your handout. Would you read the Bible with me again? It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Easily read. I love reading the Bible with you. That's why we're bringing that custom back. It sounds amazing to hear all of you read God's Word together. I want to invite you to read it together again, and this time do it thoughtfully, asking yourself as you read if you're doing this, if this is actually who you are, how you live. The Bible says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. My first question is this, can anyone actually do this? Doesn't that sound kind of otherworldly? You're always rejoicing. You never stop praying. No matter what's happening, you always give thanks in every different kind of circumstance. Can anyone actually do this? Let me encourage you that first of all, obedience here is a matter of your will and your attitude. Obedience is a matter of your will and your attitude. In other words, this is a commitment that you can embrace, as I'm, and as I'm going to explain, it has everything to do with your attitude. Nothing that God has told you here is inviting you to deny reality or make you bottle up grief. Please understand that. These Once we get into the language and we look at the rest of the letter, you're going to find that these instructions are not only practical, they're actually quite possible. It's just a matter of you deciding to do it and, in most cases, slightly tweaking your attitude so that you can. But at no point are you going to be asked to deny what is obviously and really happening And it's not going to invite you to be, as a friend of mine says, emotionally constipated and bottle up all of your grief. (laughs) That is not a whole way to live. That is not the way Jesus lived. If you read the Gospels carefully, you are going to find that the Son of God who eternally was with God and is God Himself, who became a human being in what we celebrate at Christmas time and assumed a human nature without touching or diminishing or in any way changing His eternal deity. As a human being, Jesus was emotionally complete. He cried at the right times. He made jokes, if you know how to read them. Don't have a lot of time to go into that. But if you understand how first century Jewish humor worked, Jesus was funny. He was sarcastic. You can read stories, a long story of Jesus healing a blind man, for instance, in John chapter 9, or you can remember His famous observation that you shouldn't worry about the speck in your brother's eye while you had a log sticking out of your own. If you think about that, that sets up like a good Saturday Night Live skit. 
A guy is walking around with a telephone pole jutting out of his right eye, presenting himself as an expert in helping other people see better. Jesus is emotionally whole. He doesn't deny reality. He doesn't put on a brave face. He actually weeps in front of the, friend, of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he's actually weeping. It's not pretend. He's not like we can often be pretending that something else is going on while inside we're actually dying. These three instructions, and I want to read them to you again, don't have anything to do with denying reality or stuffing your emotions. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm spending a little time here because I want you to believe on the front side that if God told you to do it, you can. Your heavenly Father is not a bad dad that puts the bar and the standard out of reach. He never commands anything that he knows is going to force his children into disobedience. Along with the instructions, he will provide you the spiritual power through the Holy Spirit to do exactly what he told you to do. We just have to understand that none of it denies reality and it doesn't bottle up our real pain, our real suffering, and our real grief over it either. Christians can be expert at that. That's why I'm spending time on this. We can be really good at wearing the mask. There can be a false understanding of Christian maturity that says all the time, I'm fine. That's denial. That's numbing yourself. That's not reality. That's not how Jesus, who is not only the one who enables us to live the way He lived, but is our example in life, that's not the way He lived. We had an example of that, and I've been thinking about Him a lot this week as I wrote this sermon because I'm older now than one of my professors was when he had to put up with me and my classmates as a freshman in Bible college. One of those professors who will remain nameless, because I think in his heart he was a good man and he meant well, he was expert, I think, because of his misunderstanding of what I'm telling you of wearing the mask. And even when things were obviously going awry in his life and in our little college, he was really good at pretending that everything was cool. What that resulted in, in his case, was that we could count upon, I had the good fortune to never take one of his classes and witness this, but it was legendary in the school. Two things were going to happen every semester. One, he was going to fall asleep in the class he himself was teaching because he was so overworked that he would ignore human limits and eventually, you know, write this down, take five minutes to do this quiz. The class looks up, he's face down on the desk, sleeping. The other thing that could be counted upon was him completely melting down in a class and yelling and screaming about how worthless all the students were. Well, I don't know if you've ever been around freshman Bible college students, but they're a dark-hearted, cynical, dark humor kind of bunch. And once it was known that we could make this man melt down, students set themselves to the task of doing it and even making bets of when it would happen. Again, I had the good fortune of never being in the classroom, but I would hear the conversations, I think today's the day we get him to blow. And then a lot of celebration back in the calf. He did it. This time he threw something. Poor guy. 
Looking back, we shouldn't have done any of that. This might be confessional on my part and more, more words that are worth to make the point, but I want you to hear as you hear these instructions that this is in Christ possible. You can properly understood what God says. You can rejoice always. If you understand what Paul means, you can pray without ceasing. And you can give thanks in all circumstances, knowing that all of the things that God just told you are His will in Christ Jesus for you. Here's the better question. How can we put these three things into practice? Rejoicing depends upon this. We rejoice by remembering, you rejoice by remembering that you are in Christ and in Christ your future is already secure. It has to do with your identity, not your circumstances. It has to do with what Jesus has already done for you, the kind of person He has already made you and is continuing to make you into. It has to do with your eternal home and your eternal state, not the present reality, which can vary and be delightful one day and miserable the next. I know this because of the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians. Look back in chapter 1, verse 6 with me, please. I just want to read you a single verse so that you'll know the reality, the gritty reality that the first Christians who received this letter were going through. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much, what's it say? Affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's very interesting. Paul says, when you heard the good news about Jesus, that put you in good company. That made you imitators of us, and that also made you imitators of the Lord Jesus. What do you mean, Paul? Well, when the word came to you, you received it in much affliction. In other words, as the gospel sometimes does in the United States and often does outside of the United States, the arrival of the message of Jesus provoked a community reaction, and for the Thessalonians, it was persecution. They suffered. Their belief in Jesus, you keep reading the chapter, Paul's going to say, you turn from idols to the living and true God. Their departure from their idolatrous pagan faith was not well received by their community. Their families pushed back. Their employers were upset. It cost them friendships. It made relationships awkward, if not painful, if not breaking them altogether. So Paul says, you receive the word in much affliction. It cost you. It hurt you. But then, look at the very next phrase. You became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with, what's it say? The joy of the Holy Spirit. Two things can be true at once. Their circumstances got worse as soon as they became Christians. That provoked suffering in their lives. That pushed them into persecution. That put them in the company of Jesus and the apostles who suffered for the sake of their witness to the gospel. But all the way through it, at the same time, Paul says, what is also present in your life, along with the affliction, 
along with all the pain and the suffering, you had joy in the Holy Spirit. This whole letter is shot through with joy and what Paul does in each and every chapter. He tells them about their present reality. He instructs them. He invites them. He encourages them. He even corrects them on some things. But each and every chapter ends with a reference to the Lord's second coming and their future glory. I've written all those references down for you. You'll notice it's every chapter, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. But I just want to show you the last three. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 please, and watch how Paul invites them to pick their sight up from their present suffering to their future glory. First Thessalonians 3, verse 11, now, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He wants them to see the end of the story. Look in chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a first century euphemism for their fellow Christians who have died. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Notice he says, not that you're not going to grieve. You're just going to grieve differently. You're going to grieve with hope in the middle of your grief. Here's what he wants them to know, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. With the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Read verse 18 with me, please. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I went to seminary for a long time to give you this brilliant insight. You know who needs encouragement? People who are discouraged. The most frequent instruction we're told in the Bible is do not be afraid. You know who needs to be told don't be afraid? People who already are. Why did Paul tell them about the security of the life of Christians who had already died and promise them that they would not only be with the Lord, they would be with their deceased loved ones? Because he wanted them to have encouragement from it. He wanted to comfort them. Look in chapter 5 now, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
the final word of encouragement in the fifth chapter after essentially ending every chapter the same way, inviting them to look past their present circumstances to their future glory is an assurance that this doesn't depend upon them, it depends upon God. The reason we can obey Paul's instruction, God's instruction to rejoice always is this, joy depends on your identity in Christ, not your circumstances. Elizabeth Elliot, that great missionary stateswoman, said it like this, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. That's the key. The first thing we're told is to rejoice always. Then it says, pray without ceasing. And again, my number one Bible reading tip is, if you've been to church here more than four times, slow down. So when you read this very simple instruction, pray without ceasing, you should ask yourself, do I? Can I? And what would that even look like? I sleep. I have a job. My boss is mean and my customers are crazy. How does that even work? I'm not a monk. I teach junior high school students. If I bow my head in prayer around junior high school students, I don't even know what might happen. Don't, don't try to find out, teachers. Okay. What would that look like? Well, the language that Paul's using here is really instructive. Two things to tell you about it. First of all, his language is really emphatic. It actually reads in Greek backwards from the way it does in English. Verse 1 says something like this, always rejoice, without ceasing pray. In other words, he's putting the emphasis on the fact that these habits have to be constant. You have to be committed to it. You have to be putting them into constant practice. But how do you even do that? Well, the language that Paul uses here in verse 17, pray without ceasing, and you don't need to learn New Testament Greek, good for you if you want to. But just a few Bible study resources, which I'm continually reminding you of, can show you this in plain English. The language that Paul uses here, pray without ceasing, is the same word that the Greek uses to describe someone with a constant cough. You know the kind? Pretty sure post-pandemic you do. I always find that guy in one spot, in the seat directly behind me on a long airline on a long airplane ride. I'll sit down and I'll hear <coughs> not pleasant. Now imagine that nine inches behind the back of your head. And I use the social cues. I'll give them a little half turn, right? Get some water, do something. That doesn't work, I might give a full turn, just a sympathetic look like, yes, isn't this terrible? That must be painful. Can you do something about it? Because this is... <laughs> I'm not sure my sanity will be in one piece if I hear that 5,000 times between Long Beach and Boston, Massachusetts. That's what Paul has in mind. The prayer is always just below the surface for the Christian. That it's always about to break out that it's both leisurely and continuous, that you're always praying. 
I don't know what it is about me, and I'm really not making this up. I just want to illustrate the point. Strange things and circumstances find me on airplanes. Several years ago, I flew, in fact, from Long Beach to Boston, that's why I'm mentioning it, on a red-eye flight on Sunday night after church. I got on a flight about 9 o'clock at night and flew all through the night to Boston, Massachusetts with an unfortunate companion. I had a cat on my row. And the cat meowed 56 times a minute all the way to Boston, Mass. I didn't make the number up. I timed it because I didn't have anything else to do at 2.30 in the morning. And the lady who knew this is not socially acceptable and clearly poor thing, not anything she had bargained for, she tried to send a social signal that she knew this was unpleasant by shushing the cat about half the time. That sounded like this. Meow, shh. Meow, shh. All the way to Boston. I find chronic noisemakers, chronic coughers, cats that can't shut up on every airplane flight. The last coffer I had, in fact, to try to deal with it, asked for some water and then coughed in the middle of drinking it. So that sprayed water in a pretty significant radius farther than you would think. That's the kind of persistence in prayer that we need. Prayer with, you pray without ceasing by remembering that you depend on God at all times. Let me be practical. What did that look like if this sermon is top of mind? What did that look like for me this morning? This isn't self-congratulatory because, frankly, this has been, at best, in terms of my spiritual life with God, this Sunday, for me, my internal responses and reactions to God have been average at best, not a particularly stellar glorious Sunday, what my father would say, nothing to write grandma about. Okay? What might that look like? Well, I woke up at five in the morning, and I thought, three hours before the first service starts. And then I just kind of laid there because it's unpleasant to wake up at five in the morning. And I realized, still a little tired, but I actually feel good. And that prompted me to thank God that I felt well. And that I got out of bed with no pain at all. And then I thought for a moment that my wife, she doesn't have to get up at 5 in the morning on Sunday morning. I thought about her because we do kind of this strange dance in the morning where I try to get ready without waking her. And that involves the judicious use of a cell phone and light and shining things around. And that made me think, you know, I'm grateful to be married. We've been together for a long time, and she's put up with a lot. Thank you, Lord. And then I got to thinking about you. And even though this is a holiday weekend, I knew there would still be a lot of people here to hear the Word of God, and I knew that you would listen with attention because you've taught me to expect that. And that hasn't always been the case. I've preached in churches, including this one, where there's been a lot of resistance. So that made me thank the Lord that I have the privilege of studying during the week and opening the Bible with people that I actually love and that actually love me back. So there's a lot of joy in it. And there's some prayer requests in it as well because I thought to myself, these are just three verses. They're so terse, they're so short, and they're so familiar, God. I need you to help me 
explain this in a way that it's actually practical and it comes alive to people and it gives them an idea of the possibility that they can, even though their life may be very hard, be joyful even in the middle of their suffering like the Thessalonians were. And be people who don't just set times aside for prayer, though they should do that too, but be the kind of people who are praying all the time like that chronic cough where a prayer to God of thanks, of confession, of help, of joy, of gratitude, of whatever the circumstances call for is always just behind their lips. That just took a few minutes while I got ready. And if you'll just, all it takes is a little bit of tweaking of an attitude to realize that the things that you've grown so accustomed to are actually gifts from your heavenly Father. The breath you just drew is a gift from Him. The life you have, the friends, the family, the fact that you live here in this amazing climate, which we get so used to. Turn on the TV, call your friends in Michigan, ask them how it's going. There are so many reasons to be grateful for all the time if we can only remember that we depend upon God at all times. The final instruction he gives to us is in verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We give thanks in all circumstances because in Christ there are always reasons to be grateful. If you're walking along with Jesus, prayer and gratitude are always going to be close behind. I gave you a picture of my morning. What might that look like for you? Well, if you have a meeting at work, if it went well, you don't have to be praying to God in the moment you're talking to your boss, although that might be a good idea in that brief little mental interlude while the boss is taking a deep breath and you don't know what she's going to say next. That might be a time to pray like Nehemiah and just shoot up a little arrow to heaven saying, God, give me the wisdom to listen to what comes next. If it's negative, give me the self-control to react like a Christian should. If the meeting went well, you can leave that meeting thanking God for it. As you drive home, you might take conscious knowledge of the fact that people get in serious accidents every single day, but not you, not today, and that itself is a cause for gratitude. It's just the slightest tweak of your attitude, remembering that you depend constantly upon God. You really can give thanks to God in all kinds of circumstances. Notice you're not being grateful for every single thing that happens. Terrible things happen in this world. Things that grieve the heart of God, that God himself does not approve of, that God himself is not grateful for happen in this world. No, the key is to thank God in the midst of those circumstances. If you adjust your attitude, you always can. I'd like you to see how closely prayer and gratitude always go together. Colossians 4 verse 2 says this, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with, what? Thanksgiving. Stay at prayer, keep at it, and while you pray, be grateful. Read Philippians 4 verse 6 with me, please. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
Garner paraphrase, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Speak to God, ask Him for the things you need, and gratefully give Him your requests. That's what Paul's communicating here. It is possible, it just requires a little bit of attitudinal training. Again, this is never inviting you to deny reality. It's asking you to look at it with a joyful, grateful, prayerful attitude. Here's an example, and it's one of the best in recorded Christian history, at least in the English language. A lot of Christians have heard of a Bible commentator named Matthew Henry. He wrote a whole Bible commentary. It's a brick of a book. And Matthew Henry was very devotional in his writing. He was scholarly and a deep thinker and a very prolific writer, but he was also very pastoral and very thoughtful and encouraging in his writing. Well, according to his diary, Henry was mugged one day. He was robbed at the point of violence. And in his diary, he recorded, strangely, his gratitude. Matthew Henry found four reasons to be grateful to God after being mugged. He said this, they robbed me, but I had never been robbed before. They took my wallet, but they didn't take my life. They took everything I had, but it wasn't much. And then they said, I'm grateful that I was robbed and not the man doing the robbing. See the attitude shift? Many Christians would go home with a deep lament to God, how could you let this happen? Henry took the exact same set of circumstances and said, though it happened to me today, I'm grateful to God that it had never happened before. They took my money, but they didn't hurt me. They took every penny I had. Thankfully, I wasn't carrying much. And thankfully, I'm also a person who was robbed I haven't become the kind of man who robs other people. Same set of facts, very different attitude. You'll notice at the end of our reading that this says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think grammatically Paul is telling us that all three of these things, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks to God in all kinds of different circumstances, all of those things are the things that God wants us to do in Christ Jesus. What kind of blessings can you expect if you do it? You'll be less anxious, and you'll be more grateful. You'll notice the good things that God is always doing around you. And finally, you're going to set an example that is worth following. I've been fascinated for the last five or six years by the findings of a psychologist named Martin Seligman. As far as I can tell, he has no reference and no belief in God. But he may be the most cited American psychologist in the history of the discipline. And he's the father of a movement in psychology called positive psychology based upon Seligman's discovery that even though he says he doesn't consider himself a particularly good therapist, if he could help people with their pathologies and their brokenness, he always ended up with a person who was merely empty, not anybody that was filled with anything good. So instead of taking a pathological approach to the discipline, he started studying 
in secular, double-blind research kinds of ways, what are the things that make human beings flourish? And he says, in 40 years of practice and research, he never found anything that was as powerful as the conscious practice of gratitude. If people will dedicate themselves to being grateful, it has an amazing effect on human beings. As it turns out, imagine this, what your heavenly Father told you to do will be good for you if you put it into practice. So I'd like to close our service by inviting you to practice. Here's how you're going to do it. And the last couple of minutes are yours in silence. I want you to write down three things that you're grateful for today. Just sit quietly before the Lord and think of three things. You can think of big things or little things. Just think of three things that you are specifically and consciously grateful for today. And then take those things joyfully to the Lord in prayer. When you're done writing, turn to Him in prayer. Take a moment to pray by yourself. And then I want you for the rest of the week to do that simple thing. To set aside time with God to consciously think of it's helpful to write down three things that you're thankful for and then thank Him for the things that He has pointed out to you. Let's do it now.